This is number three of the um, studies, short studies for beginners. The first two studies, the first one looked at the external evidence that we could discover from the archaeology in the British Museum and elsewhere to the historical integrity of the Bible. And the second study, we went from the extreme outside to the very centre and lifted out the testimony of our Saviour himself to the Scriptures. That's number two. Well, now number three is to look at the book itself. Not so much any individual passage or uh, interpretation, but just consider the Bible as a whole. And you will have supplied with this um, study a chart uh, where it has been set forth in the shape of a temple. And of course, if it's possible to assemble the books of the Bible that were written over a period longer than a thousand years by men in different capacities, different countries, different times, and then when they're assembled together, they make a complete harmonious whole, then you've either got to put um, accident into the place of design, or you've got to say, this is one of the many evidences that there was an overruling, overshadowing providence that guided the writers of these books, so that when at last we assemble them together, there is not a piece out of place, every part of it is in perfect balance. Now the first thing that I want to do is to turn to Psalm 119, because we should have to make reference to the alphabet of the Hebrew language. And here we have, in the ordinary course, in our um, Bibles, enough for the beginner to become acquainted. Psalm 119, you see, is a long psalm dealing with the Scriptures and divided into little sections of eight verses each. Over the first is Aleph, over the second is Beth, over the third is Gibel, and they are the letters of the alphabet. Now, a beginner may not really know that that's an indication that this is an acrostic psalm. And there are many acrostic passages in the Old Testament. For instance, the book of Lamentations, which perhaps some of us have never read. But uh, I, I must confess, I don't study it. But I do know this, without opening the book, that the first chapter has got 22 verses, and the middle chapter has got 66 verses, because it's an acrostic all the way through. And it's like a... Um, it's in triplicate in the third chapter and so we've got 66 verses. Now, these are not merely fanciful, they're most likely been used as notes and aids to memory. Well now, keep that in mind and look at the verse 65 of Psalm 119. The word teth over the top is one of the letters that sounds like our English word T. And if I go down this psalm, and I only have to alter a very slightest, you'll get every first word beginning with the letter T. Thou hast dealt well with thy servant. Teach me good judgment. Till I was afflicted. Thou art good. The proud hath forged a lie. Their heart is as fat as grease. Tis good for me. The law of thy mouth is better. You see? Uh, there you've got a very simple one, even in the English language, every verse beginning with the letter T. Well, now that will be, just keep in your mind, while we deal with this question of the book as a whole. And we have to use these terms because 
Uh, you will come across them in your reading. We are now referring to what is called the canon of Scripture. There is a relationship between the word canon, C-A-N-O-N, and C-A-N-N-O-N. They've parted company in the course of years because both the words derive from a cane, a measuring rod, a hollow tube. And so we have a hollow tube like a cannon for firing and we have the reed for measuring. And so we have a cannon in the Church of England. I dare say he goes off sometimes, but that's not exactly the meaning. And if you look at Galatians chapter 6, you'll see uh, the word which says, uh, the rule, anyone walking according to this rule. Now that word rule, the rule of the new creation, is the canon of the new creation. So it's a rule. So now we've got to consider the composition of the Bible and the way in which all the books are assembled together and when they are assembled together, we say that constitutes the canon of Scripture. Other books, which are religious books and helpful books, are uncanonical. They are not given by inspiration of God. They're not to be despised because if they are expressing the thoughts and feelings of people in their own day, they're using religious words which give us exactly what they meant when they used them at that time, which is valuable. But the canonical scriptures are a certain number and that's what we've got just to consider. Now, I think that's the, that's the mention of the word canon and canonicity. At the time of the Gospels, the canon of the Old Testament was already fixed. And you will remember, if you, if you uh, uh, think of the passage in Luke 24, I think perhaps I better read it uh, for, the, for the sake of completeness, although most of us know this. In Luke 24, our Saviour, in resurrection, confirmed what he'd already said as he taught the people, and in verse 44 he said unto them, These are the words which I spake unto you while I was yet with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and in the prophets and in the Psalms concerning me. There we have the law, the prophets and the Psalms. And the reason why the word Psalms is used is because that was the most important book of that last third series. Strictly speaking, if you looked on the back of the Hebrew Bibles that we have on the shelf, you would see three words, the Torah, the Nebayim and the Kehubim. Now, the Kethubim is the word, the writings. But the writings were governed by the first book in the set called the Psalms, so you can use whichever one you wish. So there our Saviour endorsed the Old Testament scriptures. We have to come further afield, of course, outside the New Testament to endorse those, but we'll see that uh, presently. Now, with regard to the, the composition of the Old Testament scriptures, the number of books and so on, um, we've got the testimony of Josephus. Josephus was born in AD 37. He was a man of the priestly line and he was there at the destruction of Jerusalem and wrote a series of works which are still of great value, the works of Josephus. And this is what he said with regard to the Old Testament and the attitude of his own people and himself to those books. I'll read what he said. For we have not an innumerable multitude of books among us, disagreeing from and contradicting one another, but only twenty-two books, which contain the records of all past times, which are justly believed to be divine. And then, of them, he says, five belong to Moses, 
The prophets who were after Moses wrote down what was done in their times in 13 books. The remaining four books contain hymns to God and precepts for the conduct of human life. So he's going through the books and telling you more or less their composition. You will notice that he says there are 22 books. We'll deal with that in a moment. He goes on in this writing. How firmly we have given credit to these books of our own nation is evident by what we do. For during so many ages, as have already passed, no one has been so bold as either to add anything to them, or take anything from them, or to make any change in them. But it becomes natural to all Jews, immediately, and from their birth, to esteem those books to contain divine doctrines, and to persist in them, and if occasion be, willingly to die for them. Now that's the testimony of Josephus, to the Old Testament scriptures and their attitude to them. And we can charge the Jew with many things. But there's one thing we have to admit, that he preserved the very Bible that speaks against him, and he has given his life rather than part with one syllable of it. Well now, there is a testimony that was given, balancing this testimony of Josephus, but this was given 232 years before Christ. So, we'll give you that as well. The book of Ecclesiasticus was written in Syro-Chaldaic, that's the language, about A.M. after Moses, 3772, or 232 years before Christ, and was translated by the author's grandson into Greek. In the prologue, he speaks of his grandfather giving himself to the reading of the law, the prophets, and the other books of our fathers. Well, that's almost the same way as saying the law the prophets, and the writings. So there we have a double endorsement. Then added to that, we have, to me, and to some of us here, that priceless version called the Septuagint. I won't attempt to go into the composition and the history of the Septuagint, except to say that for about 280 years before Christ, this Greek version of the Old Testament became what you might call the authorised version of the people of Israel. And the words which were in use 280 years before the New Testament was written must have coloured the use of the words that were used immediately afterwards. For if a person is going to write to people who use words in one way and he's going to use them entirely differently, well, it's up to him to tell the people I'm making a change. And so we have the testimony of this ancient version where we've got the books as we have them today in our Old Testament. For well, that's so far as the uh, testimony to the books are concerned. We'll come to the number of them in a moment, but we'll turn now to the New Testament. We've got the unbroken testimony, not only of friends, which is of use, but of foes, which is extreme value. For in the controversies that arose sometimes, as you know in the early days, there was those who attacked the scriptures and those who defended them, and so we had evidence right from the very earliest times. Now, there are three outstanding witnesses, without going into a long list of names which are difficult to pronounce, and which you can only read by reading translations, but there are three. One is a Greek, and one is a Coptic, or to do with the people of Egypt, and one is Latin. So there are three witnesses of outstanding value. One was born in, one, in AD 120, one was born in AD 150, 
and one was born in AD 55. So we're getting very near to the time at the close of the first century when the Bible was completed. The first one is Arrhenius, the second one is Clement of Alexandria, and the third is Tertullian. Now I'll read uh, just a word or two about this first witness, Arrhenius. He is the most voluminous of all ancient writers who quote the New Testament scriptures. Now you see, it's not possible to quote a scripture that doesn't exist. And if you quote it to prove a doctrine, you're practically saying, and I believe that to be authoritative. So when we get this man quoting the New Testament, right back in those early days, we are within a hundred years of the time of Christ's birth and Christ's death. You see, the New Testament could be almost be constructed from his works. So full are his citations. He was born only 17 years after the death of the Apostle John. 17 years after John died, this man wrote and quotes the New Testament so fully that, as I've said, you could almost put it together with a few odd verses here and there uh, from his writings. Extracts and lists of quotations cannot give the same effect as the perusal of a few pages of his writings. But he speaks of the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, as the Gospel with the four faces. And you must remember that Tatian has left behind a, a volume called the Tetragrammaton, Tetra meaning four, in which he speaks about the four Gospels. And the evidence is complete that there were four Gospels, never three, never five, just the ones that we have. He quotes the Acts of the Apostles over 60 times and shows the harmony of the Acts with Paul's epistles. He cites 1 Corinthians more than 100 times, Romans more than 80 times, Ephesians more than 30 times, Galatians nearly 30 times, Colossians 20 times, 2 Corinthians 18, Philippians 11, 1 Peter 11, 2 Thessalonians 10, 1 Timothy 5, 2 Timothy 4, Titus 3, 1 John 3, and 1 Thessalonians 2. Well, you see, there's covered a, a good bulk of the New Testament, and you can't cite, quote from an epistle, and quote one verse out of it, but you say the epistle doesn't exist because you couldn't even quote one verse if it didn't exist. So here's a testimony that goes right back to within almost the times of the Apostles quoting from the New Testament, chapter and verse, to prove his point. And then with regard to Clement of Alexandria, this is the uh, one who was in Egypt. He approaches very nearly the days of the Apostles. Clement, almost in every page, cites passages taken from the New Testament, from all the Gospels, the Acts of the Apostles, each of Paul's epistles, the first and second epistles of John and Jude and the Hebrews and the Apocalypse. Well, then you get some people telling you, how do you know these books were in existence? <laughs> what do you say? It's sheer ignorance on your part, friends. You ought to know at least these testimonies are in existence and you can question their integrity. You can raise the point as to whether they are frauds or fabrications, but that's not the point. People say there's no evidence. There's more evidence to the, to the existence and the fact of the Bible than any ancient book that's in existence. People sometimes quote a certain book, but if you were to buttonhole them and say, and where can you read that book? 
Either they wouldn't know, or if they did, they'd say, well, honestly, it doesn't exist. All we know about it, it's quoted by somebody else. And yet they'll put that book up as against the Bible as being something that's valuable, something that we know. But it isn't true, friends. This book is more substantiated than any book that's in existence. Well, then, passing from Tertullian, I come to this question of the number of the books. You see, in our Bible, we've got a different enumeration. So we have 66 books in our Bible. And you say, you've only got 49, as you look at the chart. Well, we haven't lost any books. It's only the way in which they're put together. You see, if these books in the early days were scrolls, a scroll has to have a a rod inside, and it takes up a certain amount of bulk, Well, it was a very natural thing that you would try to save space. For instance, we've got 12 minor prophets. Well, that counts 12. But they're all written on one scroll. You wouldn't want 12 scrolls. Look at the bundle of wood you'd have. You see? You haven't lost a book, but you've lost number 11. So, don't think you're losing anything. Josephus was looking out to see that you didn't lose anything because he knew that the 12 minor prophets... uh, where we get Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah and all that lot. They were all on one scroll, so they only count one, but there are twelve of them. And then a little book like Ruth belongs to the period of Judges. Well, how natural, when you're putting the two together, that you write the book of Judges, and then before you finish the scroll, just a few more inches, and you've got the little book of Ruth. Then if if you get Jeremiah's great prophecy... Fifty-odd chapters. And then there's just a few chapters of the Lamentations of Jeremiah. We'll put them at the end of it. So you haven't lost them. You've only lost a number. So will you look at the chart now and see the way in which this all falls into place? At the bottom, we have the five books of Moses, the law. And as we've already seen, he has quoted Moses as the lawgiver and Christ has endorsed him right to the full. They are the first line of foundations of which the rest stand. And then we have the prophets, and the first of the prophets, strangely enough from our point of view, perhaps is Joshua. We may not have thought so, but he is the first of the prophets according to the canon of the Old Testament scriptures. And we have Judges with the book of Ruth attached to it. Then we have Samuel. Now our version is one Samuel and two Samuel. Then we have one kings and two kings. But you can't find that in the original. You'll only find one Samuel and one kings, because they haven't divided them up into two books. So again, you see, we lose two numbers, but we still retain the books. And then we have Isaiah, Jeremiah with his Lamentations, Ezekiel, and the twelve minor prophets. So there we have five books of the law, and eight books of the prophets. Well, then we come to the next stage, where we have the Psalms, or the writings. We have the first one, the book of the Psalms, which is divided into five parts itself and keeps pace with the law of Moses, but that's another story. Then we have the Proverbs, Job, the Song of Solomon, Ecclesiastes, Esther, Daniel, Ezra and Nehemiah together on one scroll, and finally the book of Chronicles. The last book in the Bible of the Old Testament is the book of Chronicles. The last chapter of the book of Chronicles reads these terrible words, no remedy, no remedy. And you turn the page 
and you read the book of the generations of Jesus Christ, the son of David, Emmanuel, God with us, his name should be called Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. God's remedy. So now we've come to the New Testament, which is built squarely upon the Old. And there we get uh, the final stage of the platform upon which the rest of it is built, the historic books. The Gospels and the Acts are the history books. They tell you of the birth, and the life, and the death, the character, and the teaching of Christ, but they do not expand and expose the doctrine. You have to wait for the epistles to give you a treatise on justification by faith, or sanctification, and all the other features. But the Gospels give you the first advent of Christ, his work, and death, resurrection, and ascension. The Acts of the Apostles is a continuation written by Luke who wrote the Gospel by his name because he addresses the same man in the first chapter and says, the former treatise which I wrote unto you, O Theophilus, now I'm going on with a second one, so the Acts of the Apostles is written to bring the story of the witness right through to the moment when the people of Israel were dismissed by God under the preaching of Paul at Rome and for two years he occupied his time in prison, writing what we call the prison epistles, which are the witness for God to us in this present interval. But we're not dealing with that, I'm only mentioning it. That covers the whole ground, you see, of history. Well then, we find the epistles are arranged in groups of seven. There is not one group that's six, and another one that's five, and so puts all the pattern out, no, just in sevens. We have the epistles of the circumcision. We have uh, James, 1 and 2 Peter, 3 of John and Jude. Then we have the first part of Paul's public ministry, when he was a free man. And there we have the epistles Galatians, Thessalonians, Corinthians, Hebrews and Romans. If anyone questions Hebrews, that comes along sometime later. But for, for the moment, that's an epistle that's got to be put into its place. And then when Paul became the prisoner, as we've said, he wrote seven more, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, Philemon, and Titus. Seven again. Well, there is only wanting now the crown of the whole structure, the book that looks right back to Genesis and speaks of a new heaven and a new earth, the pledge and commencement of that purpose which will make all things new. And this we have in the book of the Revelation. I can even put seven capitals on the pillars because there are seven epistles to the churches of Asia and with this the whole rounds out and is complete. Not a piece is out of its place. Surely that book which comes to you with the threefold evidences already considered, namely the testimony of archaeology and of antiquity, the testimony of Christ himself and the testimony of the book itself challenges our faith and demands our attention. If this book comes from God, we dare not pass it by, for the issues of life and death lie within its pages. Here, with this exhibition of purpose and of unity, we must bring our third study for beginners to a close.